You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shoman. Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, the show is supposed to be about exactly that, the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church. And sometimes I go a little bit of field and, and sometimes I talk about other issues of um, spirituality or other topics of spirituality. But I want to get back to the mother load today and talk about the uh, phenomenon, essentially, of Jewish entry into the church and why it's important and what we know about it. And also, uh, I want to air a little, it's not really dirty laundry, but I get a lot of questions about about um, what Jews think should happen when they enter the church, I guess is one way to look at it. And there, uh, there's an old joke, two Jews, three opinions, and I'm afraid that that's true in this situation too. Uh, so I want to talk about some of the different philosophies, so to speak, that Jews who enter the church have with respect to things such as um, still following any of the Jewish holidays or still following any of the Old Testament laws that were particular to Judaism and so forth. Uh, so this is a little bit of a hardcore show. It, it may or may not be of um, general interest to people who aren't particularly interested in the issue of Jews entering the church. But let me begin by saying why you should be at least somewhat interested in the issue of Jews entering the church. And that is because we know as Catholics from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that uh, unless and until a large number of Jews enter the church, Jesus is not coming again. So if we want the second coming, if we want Jesus to come back in his second coming, we there has to be a large-scale conversion of Jews. Paragraph 674 of the New Catechism states, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. I'll just repeat that. The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. In other words, the picture is as though Jesus is up there in heaven, hovering, just waiting for permission to descend and wrap things up on earth. But he has to wait until there is this large-scale conversion of Jews, his recognition by all Israel. Now, that um, teaching of the Catholic Church, which has been there, by the way, since the Apostolic Fathers, since, since the very first centuries of the Church, uh, is based in large part on St. Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 11, particularly. So I will probably be t- uh, spending at least the second half of the show talking about what we know about the conversion of Jews to precede the second coming from Romans 11. But as I said, I wanted to um, begin the show by talking about all of the issues that um, emerge around Jews entering the church. So uh, before I get on a roll and forget myself, let me point out, this is a live call-in program. The number here is 866-333-6279. 
6279 spells out Mary, M-A-R-Y, on your dial pad or keypad or whatever. So the number here is 866-333-M-A-R-Y. If you wish to call in at any point, I will um, be very happy to stop what I'm saying for the moment and take your calls and questions or comments. Um, and uh, about halfway through the show, I will be taking a short musical break. And that's always a good time to call because then coming out of the musical break, I'll go directly to the call board. And if there are any calls that have come in, I'll take them before I continue. Okay, so I'm starting with this kind of hardcore issue. Let me just um, perhaps lay some groundwork, which is... Um, uh, let me... Okay, I'll, I'll start a little earlier. I'll start with St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas taught or wrote that once a Jew enters the church, because by the way, the entry of Jews into the church is, isn't a new thing, right? It's, it started, you could say it started with the 12 apostles because they were all Jews. As a matter of fact, the quarreling about whether they should obey Jewish law began with the 12 apostles, right? Um, St. Paul and St. Peter were in disagreement about whether Jews who became Christian still had to keep kosher. So this is not a new topic. It's been around since the first days of the church. But in any case, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote that for Jews to follow Jewish law, Jewish ritual law, Ten Commandments still apply, but Jewish ritual law, once they enter the church, is a mortal sin. Now, what he meant by that, if I can presume to say so, the, the understanding, the interpretation of that statement of St. Thomas Aquinas is generally taken to be, and he actually uh, explains what he means by it a little bit too, is that if a Jew who enters the church follows Jewish ritual law because he thinks it's necessary for his salvation, then in fact it is a very serious sin because then he is denying that redemption is through Christ and through the sacraments of the church rather than through the ritual laws that were given in the Old Testament. So it would be a denial, it would essentially be a denial of the New Covenant if a Jew who entered the church thought that it was a mortal sin, so to speak, for him to eat pork or uh, work on Saturdays or so forth. So that's a good starting point. So, but because St. Thomas said that, there are people around today who say, well, if a Jew, I'll take a very common example, celebrates a Passover Seder, is he committing a mortal sin? Uh, the Passover Seder, I think most of you probably know, but the Passover Seder is one of the main uh, liturgical events on the calendar in Judaism. It's done in the home. It's done in the family. And it celebrates or commemorates the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. And, of course, we also know that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. So I, this is a little bit of a side point, but I, I very frequently get invited to celebrate Passover Seders at Catholic parishes. And when I do, I celebrate them 
in order to illumine the Last Supper, essentially, and to show how the Old Covenant was transformed into the New Covenant at the Last Supper, which was simultaneously the last sacramental Jewish Passover Seder and the first sacramental Catholic Mass, right? It was at the Last Supper that Jesus first confected the Eucharist. So it's a, it's a very powerful teaching experience. Um, and I, I, needless to say, not only do I think I'm not committing a mortal sin when I do that, but I get invited. I, I mean, for instance, Cardinal Burke, who's on many of our minds right now, who used to be the highest authority in canon law in the entire Catholic Church as the head of the Signatura, um, he said in an interview, he, he's a great fan of Jewish Passover seders celebrated for illustrative purposes in Catholic settings, um, showing the Christological uh, meaning, hidden meaning, in many aspects of the Passover seder. He should know, because he was the highest canon law authority in the church. So that's one example. Uh, another example is keeping kosher, whether Jews who enter the church uh, should keep kosher, are allowed to keep kosher, so to speak, have to eat, you know, BLTs or, or whatever. Now, when you look at any of these issues about what Jews should do when they enter the church, one has to distinguish between different motivations. First of all, if they do any of them because they think that um, God requires it of them for them to not be sinning, essentially for their salvation, then I think St. Thomas Aquinas' statement applies. That's simply denying the efficacy of um, Christ's sacrifice. So that we can put aside. But there are other issues too. For instance, their Jewish entry into the church is a very good thing because, first of all, everybody's entry into the church is a very good thing. That's why the church has a missionary impulse. As a matter of fact, the great commissionists go out to all the nations and make them disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I don't have that word for word. Um, but anyway, it's the great commission. It is the major uh, primary external a commandment for the church is to go out and make disciples of all nations. So to bring anyone who is outside of the church into the church is a great mitzvah. It's a great favor to God as well as to that person because God wants to see everybody in heaven. So there is a pastoral concern because you, what you want to do is you want to lower the barriers for Jews entering the church. You want to make it easier for them to enter the church. Now, a, a Jew who has spent the first 30 years of his life as a Jew having a horror of eating pork or shellfish because it feels to him like a something unclean and displeasing to God, is it so important that he no longer follow kosher laws. In other words, if the requirement to eat pork, so to speak, was a bigger hurdle than he could get over in entering the church, is that worth it? Or is it more worth it to let him still keep kosher and have him come into the church as a fully believing Catholic who still feels a kind of innate aversion to breaking the laws of kashrut? That means the laws of, of keeping kosher. 
Um, so you have a pastoral reason with all of these things, including uh, celebrating the Jewish holidays. I mean, um, if the centerpiece of your family worship of God in your Jewish family was the Passover Seder, then if the family enters the church, is it so wrong for them to still celebrate a Passover Seder in the light of Christ? In other words, acknowledging the way that the old covenant was replaced by the new covenant in the context of this event, which brings them together at the Last Supper. So you have the pastoral concerns. Um, then you also have the evangelizing concerns. And this is actually even, it gets even thornier because when I entered the Catholic Church, in a way, I thought I was the first person, the first Jew in 2,000 years to want to enter the church. I couldn't find another Jew who had become Catholic to talk to. For about three years, I was kind of dying just to talk to another Jew who had made the same journey that I was making, and I couldn't find one. It's hard to find Jews in the church. If there's an organization of Jews in the Catholic church, then it's relatively easy to find them. Um, if there was a, a congregation of Jews in the Catholic Church, let's say, then it would be relatively easy for a Jew who became interested in the Catholic Church to connect with people that he identified with who had made the same transition he was considering. So one also has to keep a sensitivity to what makes it easier to evangelize Jews into the Catholic Church. Then you have um, dogmatic considerations because there are, there are places where you do not want to run afoul of dogma. Um, that is sort of along the lines of what St. Thomas Aquinas said, but you can say observing the Sabbath. Now, I think it would be problematic for a Jew in the Catholic Church to strictly observe the uh, Jewish Sabbath of Saturday because um, he, he or she is under the requirement to observe the Christian Sabbath of Sunday. Anyway, they have to observe the Sunday Sabbath laws as Catholics. And if they observe the Saturday Sabbath laws of Jews as well, then all of a sudden they have a 50-hour Sabbath, so to speak. They have a two-days-on-end Sabbath, which might be very hard to incorporate into the rest of life. So you may get into uh, areas where there's a, a conflict, so to speak. And um, finally, you have perhaps what's perhaps the thorniest issue, which is what's God want? And um, uh, let me say, uh, first of all, let me just um, uh, repeat that this is a call-in program, so you don't have to put up with me um, speaking nonstop if you have a question or if you have a comment. But anyway, you have the issue of what God wants. And this is actually where there's the most disagreement in the community of Jews in the Catholic Church. Uh, because there are many Jews in the Catholic Church who think that God still wants Jews to remain identifiably separate, and even wants Jews to continue to obey the Jewish laws even when they do enter the Catholic Church. Now, I think that's a, that's a pretty unsupportable 
argument, um, but it is one that's frequently made. Um, there's another issue too, as a matter of fact. There's one organization of Jews in the Catholic Church. Pretty much there's only one major organization in the whole world, and it's the Association of Hebrew Catholics. And when I first found out about the Association of Hebrew Catholics, I was rather indignant because what on earth is a Hebrew Catholic? Why aren't I a Jewish Catholic or a Catholic Jew? I mean, I was a Jew for the first, whatever, 35 years of my life. How did I stop becoming a Jew and become a Hebrew when I entered the Catholic Church? It didn't make any sense to me. Now, the reason why the organization calls itself um, the Association of Hebrew Catholics rather than the Association of Jewish Catholics is because some Jews in the Catholic Church don't think they have the right to use the word Jew because they think that they're only allowed to use the word Jew if, you know, I can't even, I don't even want to say it, but they're only allowed to use the word Jew if A, they're uh, obedient to Jewish law, observant of Jewish law, or B, if they haven't entered a different religious community. However, uh, the issue of only being called a Jew if you're obedient to Jewish law is rather ridiculous because everybody knows that Woody Allen is a Jew or that, um, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but that, uh, <laughs> I don't, anyway, I don't have to name them all, but all kinds of uh, atheists who are Jews. I see we have a caller. I'll, I'll, I'll come to him in about 30 seconds. So if they're still allowed to call, think of themselves as Jews, why aren't we Jews in the Catholic Church still allowed to call ourselves Jews? Anyway, I see we have a caller. Are you there, Ryan? Yes, I'm here, Roy. Hi. Uh, Hi. Did you have a comment or a question or a complaint? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I've got a question. I hope a quick one. I uh, apologize for taking you off topic. I really, I rarely get to listen live, so... Um, in listening to your witness testimony, you had mentioned that you would ask our Holy Mother what her favorite prayer was, uh, hoping that she might teach you the Hail Mary. Um, but instead, she, she told you something else. Uh, and if I'm remembering right from that recording, it was you, you thought it might have been the miraculous metal prayer in Portuguese. My question yeah. is, do you still think it's that? And if not, what else uh, have you learned that it may be? And do you recommend that we honor our Holy Mother and, and what's her, with her favorite prayer? <laughs> okay. Um no, I don't have any better, I don't want to call it a guess, but I, I, I don't have any better guess than that it was, um, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Um, I uh, wrote down the syllables, first few syllables phonetically when I woke up the next morning, and to the best of my ability, um, I, well, I when I met a Portuguese Catholic woman, I asked her to recite all the Marian prayers in Portuguese, and to the best of my ability, that's the one that sounded most like the syllables that I had written down. So there's no way for me to have a better inspiration now than, than I did at the time. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to be impolite at all, but I'm, you know, Mary's first answer, by the way, when I asked her what her favorite prayer was, was I love all prayers to me. And I think that's the bottom line. The bottom line is she loves all prayers to her. So um, 
I'm I'm sure she loves the Hail Mary. She loves the Memorare. She loves the Salve Regina, Hail Holy Queen. Uh, she loves the O Mary Conceived Without Sin. And I think that the difference between them is insignificant compared to the value of any of them. Um, but I do like that prayer. It was also Maximilian Kolbe's, um, I don't want to say favorite, but Maximilian Kolbe was a great apostle of that prayer too. So does that answer your question a little bit sideways? It does. Thank you so much, Roy. I appreciate that. Sure. Uh, thanks for the call. Um, so let's see, where was I? Um, oh, yes, being a Jewish Catholic rather than a Hebrew Catholic, um, which raises a related issue. Uh, because I think, I know as a matter of fact, that one of the reasons that the Association of Hebrew Catholics took that name rather than Jewish Catholics is that uh, they didn't want to step on the toes of the Jewish community. And nothing infuriates the Jewish community more than the suggestion that you can be Jewish and Catholic or Jewish and Christian. Um, it's extremely infuriating to them. So they wanted to do a little bit of a side run, is that the word? And run around that issue. And uh, skirt it, you know, by not calling themselves the Association of, of Jewish Catholics, which would be a little, little bit like, you know, waving a red flag in front of a bull. Um, there's, um, I think that's a mistake, by the way. I, I think I would be much happier. I do not consider, I never called myself a Hebrew. I never called myself a Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. To me, Hebrew is a language. Um, I know that in the Old Testament, you can make a, a, a kind of scholarly argument about, about, uh, you know, the word Jew refers to the tribe of Judah and the word Hebrew is more, universal for the offspring of Abraham and so forth. But language reflects the meaning that people have in in their minds associated with words. And when people use the word Hebrew, they're not thinking about that distinction. Or when they use the word Jew, they're not thinking about somebody from the tribe of Judah. We all know what they're thinking about. And it involves all of us Jews, whether we're from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or Asher or Naphtali or anything. So anyway, and I will finally, uh, before we go to the break and before I uh, go on to Romans 11, I, I do want to address the um, probably the biggest elephant in the room, which is there is a movement among Jews in the Catholic Church to institute a separate rite, rite, R-I-T-E, uh, a separate liturgy for Jews in the church. Uh, like we have the Byzantine rite and we have the Ukrainian Catholic rite and so forth. I, I actually think that reflects the worst of Judaism. I think it's a very un-Catholic attitude that once one enters the Catholic church, one is supposed to have one's own separate um, cubicle in the Catholic Church, you know, or separate floor in the Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. And I, I understand that there's a multiplicity of rights, but there's a multiplicity of rights. Generally, the different rights came about because there was already a community celebrating that right. And when they joined or rejoined the Catholic Church, 
allowance was made for them to keep the right that they had been celebrating over the past centuries. Again, to make it easier to bring people into the Catholic Church, to lower the hurdle. If there was a group somewhere of a few million Jews who were somehow celebrating some kind of a almost Catholic uh, mass, only with slightly different rules, and they wanted to join the Catholic Church, and, and then the Catholic Church would lower the hurdle by saying, okay, you can keep your current liturgy and will incorporate it as a separate rite, that would be a different matter. But there is no such community. It would be making one out of whole cloth. It would be just sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and making up a new rite for the sake of being a separate rite. And frankly, I can't think of anything more un-Catholic, so to speak, than that. And if I can be really offensive, unfortunately, okay, and I'll end here, uh, this half of the show here, but um, when you look at the Old Testament, the one of the primary characteristics of the Jewish people was their desire to stay separate from everyone around them. Now, that made sense before the Incarnation, because they had to stay separate because they had to host the Incarnation. And there was this like very elaborate system that God had developed to prepare the way for the Incarnation, uh, including, by the way, all of the revelation of the Old Testament given to the Jews. So the Jews had to stay together as a body to enable the Incarnation to take place. However, after the Incarnation, there's no need for the Jews to stay separate anymore. It's perhaps a aspect of fallen human nature, the extent to which they want to stay separate. And it's not unique to the Jews. We see it. I live in a town. <laughs> this is really true. I live in a town that is a um, immigrant community. It's a it's a, a fishing town. And so people from different countries who were in the fishing business when they became immigrants settled in this town. So the town is like half Portuguese and half Sicilian. So the local parish had to make sure, or, or the bishop actually, when he assigns a priest to the local parish, had to make sure that he didn't assign a Italian priest and he didn't assign a Portuguese priest. Because if he assigned a Portuguese priest, the Italians would be up in arms. And if he assigned an Italian priest, the Portuguese would be up in arms. Now, that is an, a true aspect of fallen human nature, but it's not the ideal the ideal in the Catholic Church would be that we welcome everybody with open arms. So the idea of a separate Jewish rite, I think, is anathema. So with that, we're about halfway through the show. Um, I have my, this is a little message for the studio, but I have my own music queued up uh, that I will provide for the, um, for the short musical break. It's about, um, I think it's about three minutes long. And what it is, is it is um, a, a very lovely, uh, I don't want to say monastic, but religious community, Catholic religious community choral group chanting, Come Lord Jesus, in a number of different languages. Why did I choose this? For two reasons. One is, it's Come Lord Jesus, because we are told to pray for the return of Jesus, which means we have to pray for the conversion of the Jews, since there has to be a conversion of the Jews before Jesus can return. And secondly, um, because it's in a number of different languages and um, part of my point, a little bit of my point in this show so far, has been um, defending the Catholicity, 
Catholic means universal, the universality of the Catholic Church, that God instituted the Catholic Church not just for the Gentiles, meaning not just for the non-Jews, not just for the Jews, not just for the Irish, not just for the Italians, not just for the Polish, not just for the whites, not just for the blacks, but for every human soul. So with that, let's go to Harp a Day, singing uh, Come Lord Jesus. I'll be back in a few minutes if you want to call in with a uh, question or a comment. In the meantime, um, I'll, I'll check the call board when I get back. And the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. And with that, let's go to Come Lord Jesus. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Si ven pronto, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Si ven pronto, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Well, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, 
There were many different languages there. Uh, the last uh, three, I suppose, were Hebrew and I believe Croatian and and then uh, I think Greek. But anyway, uh, there was obviously Spanish and English and so forth. I hope you enjoyed that. The group is called um, Harpa Dei. They're a small religious community in Germany now. And um, you can find them on on the internet, uh, excuse me, on, on YouTube. It's Harpa, H-A-R-P-A, new word, Dei, D-E-I, which means the harp of God. And they have a lot of, of religious music for free up uh, on YouTube if you just want to search for them. But I see that we have a uh, at least one caller. So uh, perhaps the studio will put them on. And um, are you are you there, caller? Well, uh, Roy, no, the uh, the caller just wanted to, to ask the question, um, did the Israelites uh, believe in eternal life uh, during the Old Testament? Oh, okay, gotcha. I see it was off air question. Sure. Well, that's a very good question. It's a very good question. And um, there isn't a very simple answer. You might notice I, I'm not one to usually find simple answers anyway. I make everything complicated. But this is actually a complicated issue for, for at least two reasons. One is, uh, as we know from the New Testament, if you read it carefully, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and believed in life after death. And the Sadducees did not. So we already had, um, there were other Jewish sects too, by the way, the Zealots and the Essenes and so forth. But you can see that there wasn't a universal view. Second of all, if you read the Old Testament, you see that there is, um, although uh, not in the Torah necessarily, not in the first five books, but elsewhere in the New Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament, you see their references to uh, eternal life, but nothing specific, nothing specific. It's extremely vague. Um, the, uh, the passage in, in Job is, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and, um, and he'll take care of me after I die, essentially. Now, there's a logical reason why the sense of the afterlife in the Old Testament was extremely vague, and that is... A trumpet blare, because there essentially was no afterlife until Jesus came. Or rather, there was an afterlife, but there was no heaven. There was no heaven, right? No one was in heaven. Remember, on Holy Saturday, Jesus descended to the dead and opened the gates of heaven. And all of the just who had died before Holy Saturday were in this state of limbo. It was known as the limbo, I believe, limbo of the fathers or the limbo of the just. They were waiting for the Messiah to come in order to open the gates of heaven and open heaven to them. So the sense of the afterlife in the Old Testament is this shadowy, vague sense. And that's, of course, the characteristic of limbo, right? It's kind of shadowy, it's kind of vague, it's kind of inconclusive, it's kind of a state of waiting. And uh, so it's very appropriate that the Jewish view, so to speak, of the afterlife was kind of vague um, and non-committal. Now, more recently, uh, with, the, with the Talmud, the Talmud goes into more detail about the afterlife. 
Um, and in particular, the Talmud makes it quite clear that there is a hell. Uh, in other words, that there is a state of eternal torment for um, for at least Jews who die in a state of mortal sin, so to speak. Boy, I could spend, I do spend over an hour on this topic sometimes. There's another complexity too, which is uh, Judaism is all about the future coming of a Messiah. And in, in Judaism, you have basically a distinction between two worlds, this world and the world to come. And in Judaism, when the phrase the world to come is used, it's very unclear, it's ambiguous whether it's used to refer to what happens to you after you die, the world to come, or whether it refers to the world after the Messiah comes, the world to come. So there is a kind of built-in confusion between essentially uh, heaven and versus life on earth after the coming of the Messiah. I'll just say one thing, which is it was such a joy to enter the Catholic Church and have everything be made perfectly clear in a way that a seven-year-old can understand. All of these mysteries were very, very opaque, obscure mysteries until I you know, almost found the uh, Baltimore Catechism, so to speak. I mean, it is such a gift in the Catholic Church to have straightforward, definitive, clear resolution of all of these questions that are the, the deepest questions in the human soul. So anyway, I did answer that question, I think. And um, in the uh, little bit of time remaining, um, I want to at least go to Romans 11. I think I only have about, you know, 15 minutes, so I'm not going to do it justice, but I'd like to go to Romans 11 and talk about the uh, role, I'll say the role of Jews in the church, the mystery of the conversion of the Jews before the second coming. So I'm going to start at the beginning of Romans 11, <clears throat> excuse me, but I'm going to skate through rather quickly uh, because of um, the time limit that we have. So this is uh, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, beginning with chapter 11, first verse. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So we see here <clears throat> that even though the Jews rejected Christ, uh, God did not turn around and reject the Jews. Uh, Paul continues, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's good news for us Jews. Then St. Paul goes on to say, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So we see here something very mysterious. I'll, I'll just re repeat that. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So for some mysterious reason, which St. Paul fortunately explains in the next verses, God ordained, so to speak, that although 
a, a small segment of the Jewish people would follow Christ. The majority would have their eyes darkened, uh, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, so that they wouldn't follow Christ. So that seems to be a mysterious part of God's plan. And St. Paul then goes on to explain why. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So, four times in these few verses, St. Paul says the same thing. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Those were all quote direct quotes from those few verses. So, St. Paul is making it very clear. The Jews' rejection of Christ was necessary for the church to spread properly throughout the Gentile world. Um, it's clear in other places in the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts, why that was the case. Because, of course, Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were all Jews. Um, the church was born out of Judaism. The danger would be to think that you had to be a Jew to qualify for entering into the church, that the church was only for Jews. In fact, we see this was in a, a crisis in the early church. In the book of Acts, we see this. I think it's Acts 15 that some of the apostles, including St. Peter, if I'm not mistaken, actually thought that were requiring Gentiles, that means non-Jews, to sacramentally become Jews before they qualified for entry into the church. That was obviously a serious error, which was resolved at the first church council, the Council of Jerusalem, about 50 AD. But so we see how the failure of Jews to enter the church was necessary for the church to spread properly among the Gentiles because, in fact, because of the failure of the Jews to enter the church, within a few years, the church was visibly composed of Jew and Gentile. If all of the Jews around Jerusalem at the time, five million Jews, had flooded into the church, it really would have looked like it was simply the new version of Judaism. It is the new version of Judaism, but it's the new version of Judaism for the whole world, not just for the Jews. Anyway, continuing, St. Paul goes on to his image of the olive tree of salvation. And he says, as, um, but if some of the branches were broken off of this olive tree of salvation, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. Um, for even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So I, I actually um, I started reading that. That was Romans 11, verse 17. And I finished at verse 24. I skipped a number of verses in the interest of time. That might have been a mistake. Um, but I just wanted to introduce this image that St. Paul uses of the olive tree of salvation. The olive tree of salvation was rooted in Judaism. The original cultivated olive branches were the Jews. 
some of those original cultivated olive branches were broken off. Those, that's the Jews who did not enter the church. Uh, but they were broken off to make room to graft in wild olive branches. That's the Gentiles in the church. If you're one of the grafted in wild olive branches, that is a Gentile in the church, do not boast over the broken off cultivated olive branches. That's the Jews who are not in the church. Because remember that God has the power to graft them in again. And when he does, they'll be even better suited to the tree because they were originally a part of it. That's absolutely, you know, absolutely clear in Paul's description of his olive tree in verses 17 to 24. So then you see this image that emerges. You have this olive tree of salvation. The branches originally were the Jews. Some of those were broken off to make room for wild olive branches. That's the Gentiles in the church. But when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, God will graft back in the broken off cultivated olive branches. That's the Jews who were not in the church, but they will enter the church. They will convert. And then this olive tree of salvation composed of cultivated olive branches, which were never broken off. Those are the Jews that accepted Jesus at the time, uh, you know, at the time of Christ. The grafted in wild olive branches, that's the Gentiles in the church. And the regrafted in cultivated olive branches, that's the, con- the Jews who will convert in time for the second coming. And the olive tree composed of those three sets of branches will then be ready for the second coming. Uh, I will continue with the next verse in St. Paul. It'll make this a little bit clearer or a lot clearer, I hope. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, this is actually one of the verses that's cited in the Catechism to support the teaching that there has to be a widespread conversion of the Jews before the second coming. I'll just repeat those few verses. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel. That is the veil over the eyes of the Jews that was described earlier in the chapter, right? A spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, and so forth. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. In other words, until the the church has spread properly throughout the entire Gentile world, and then all Israel will be saved, and then the Jews will enter the church, and then the church composed of Jew and Gentile will be ready for the second coming. I'll just repeat those two verses. Lest you be be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now I'm going to continue. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Okay? Um, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. In other words, as regards the gospel, as regards the New Testament, they are enemies of God. They reject the gospel, right? They reject the truth of Jesus. They reject the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. 
because it was a necessary part of God's plan for the church to spread properly to the Gentiles. So as regards the gospel, there are enemies of God for your sake. Okay, so don't lord it over them because it's for your sake that they're enemies of God with regards to the gospel. And then the next clause, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Okay, so as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God, but for the sake of the Gentiles. But as regards election, remember the promise that God made to Abraham and to a seed forever. We say that every day in the divine office, right? In the, um, in the canticle, uh, you know, the promise that God made to Abraham and his seed forever. As regards election, that is the promise that God made to Abraham and his seed forever, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Okay, so they're still beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, God is still honoring the promise he made to Abraham. Now, Notice this distinction here, the, the distinction between as regards the gospel and as regards election. This is incredibly crucial because there are two errors that um, Catholics make with respect to the meaningfulness of Judaism. One error is that there's, there's no meaningfulness at all. There's the, all of the election that had belonged to the Jews is now in the Catholic Church, and the Jews are entirely rejected. Um, that is one view that's sometimes espoused. And that is ignoring the second clause here, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The other error is that we don't have to evangelize the Jews because they're still in their original saving covenant with God. And that is not true with respect uh, to the first clause here. In other words, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. In other words, you have to separate out the, the sacramental salvific value of Old Testament Judaism. That went away 2,000 years ago, period. So Judaism is, uh, how can I put this? The Jews are not in their original saving covenant with God. That saving covenant was replaced by the church. However, as regards election, they are still beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So Jews are not saved through old, you know, following the ritual requirements of the Old Testament. You can't say that. So, and there are some parties in the Catholic Church who say we shouldn't evangelize Jews because they're, they're still saved by their original relationship with God. That's not true. It's clear from the New Testament is not true. It's clear from the letter to the Hebrews that is not true. And it's even clear within Judaism it's not true because all of that sac all of the remission of sins required temple sacrifice, which has not been possible since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So um, I'll just finish the chapter. I only have a, about two or three minutes left. Just as you were once disobedient to God because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. And this is actually one of the reasons why God set things up this way. He wanted it to be clear to everybody that salvation is a sovereign act of the mercy of God. It's a, it's a gift of God. It's nothing anyone could earn or deserve. The Jews, when Jesus first came, they thought they deserved salvation. So they had to go through a period of disobedience be out of relationship with God so that when they come into the church, 
it'll be clear to them that is a sovereign act of the mercy of God. The Gentiles were out of relationship with God at the time that Jesus came, so they could immediately enter the church because it was evident to them at the time that it was a sovereign act of the mercy of God and nothing they possibly could have deserved or earned through their own efforts. So that is a 12-minute race through Romans 11. Um, I hope it made some sense to you. I do prefer to spend more time on this uh, when I go through this. It's an incredibly rich chapter, and it's actually the mother load of theology revolving around the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the church in between the first and second coming of Christ, which, of course, is the theme of the show, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. So with that, it's unfortunately time when I have to leave you. Um, I will go out with, again, that same um, beautiful chant of um, Come, Lord Jesus, now that we know why we, why we should be singing and chanting and praying uh, come Lord Jesus, so that the second coming can happen, which means we should be praying for the conversion of the Jews so the second coming can happen. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this was of some interest, and I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And this is Roy saying uh, bye for now, and let's uh, listen once again to Harpa Day chanting Come, Lord Jesus. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Si ven pronto, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Si ven pronto, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come, 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 Jesus, Maranatha.